American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Fuck. You, you usually have to wait till I hit record before you start usually you start recording like when I'm still in the bathroom. You are always in the bathroom, and now we're recording. So now you can start. Welcome to another episode of American American Timelines. I'm Amy, and that's Joe. That's who we are. And this is the podcast that brings you all the biggest hits from the 1950s. And we are jerks, and we are history for jerks. Mm, Yes. And today we're going to talk... About 1956. That's right. We're in March and April, my friends. We apologize for last week having put together another uh, flashback episode, but I had the stupid COVIDs. Yeah, we had a family reunion that turned into a super spreader event. It became an event. My it was like a it. Sturgis rally. Well, up the there. stupid thing about it is that I flew to L.A. or a few months back. And back at a fest at a comedy festival filled with people. I flew to Montreal for just for laughs. Was around tons of people partying. They were all vaccinated, <laughs> and everybody was vaccinated. Yeah, and so I didn't get it. I didn't get it any of those things. So I was beginning to think I was just immune. I was just one of these people that can't get it because I've been around some everywhere. of your families. And then I went to a lake where we were outside the whole time. Yeah, sitting around a campfire, and I got it from my cousin, yep. who got it from his wife. You got it from a woman who was unclean. Yes. I assume. I don't know. But I don't know. Somewhere along the line, somebody was unvaccinated probably. And Anyway, nobody's immune. So yeah, let that be a lesson. Get your boosters. I didn't get my second booster because they said I couldn't get it yet. Get your boosters and get your boobs out. Get your boobs out and get your boosters. We're all going to get it. Get your boosters on your boobs, maybe. And it kicked my ass, I'll say. A lot of people are like, oh, I, I had it. I didn't even know it. Yeah. I knew it, and it fucking kicked yeah, my ass. Yeah, you were baby. Hey, it, I felt bad. It was like swallowing glass, I bro. Know, sweetie, I know. I'm always thirsty anyway, and yeah. this thing was I. You could, I couldn't not be drinking water. Yeah, and not be miserable as long as I was, as I was swallowing water, I was okay. Other than that, I was miserable. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it sucks and it's serious, and take it seriously, everybody. And that brings us to March. Yeah, <laughs> We're jumping to March, nineteen fifty-six. All right, and um, I'm going to tell the story of the moonshine murder mystery. The moonshine murder mystery, also known as the Brasher Die disappearance. Wait, the say it. How do you spell that? Brasher, B-R-A-S-H-E-R. Yeah. Die, D-Y-E. D-Y-E, the Brasher Die Experience. Dis- okay. Disappearance. Oh, disappearance. 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 All right. And this is what date? Tell me again. March what? 3rd. March 3rd of 1956. And so you are starting this one out because my events don't start till March 7th. So All right. This is you. Robert Earl Die, who was 23. Yeah. Billy Howard Dye, who was 19, uh-huh. and Dan Brasher, who was 38. 
Okay. All vanished after leaving for a party in 1956 at a relative's home in Jefferson County, Alabama. Dan Brasher is the guy's name? Mm-hmm. It reminds me of Bill Brasky. Anyway, this is March 3rd, 1956, the same day that the Honeymooners episode was on Mama Loves Mambo. Okay. Uh, none you want to know of what them... happens on that episode? Or no. Not? You don't, don't even want to know? Care. None of the men or the vehicle they left in have been seen since. So brothers Robert Earl Dye, Billy Howard, and their cousin Dan Brasher were last seen leaving for a party together on the night of March 3rd. <coughs> okay, they were leaving the same night <clears throat> that uh, a new neighbor moves next door to the Cramdens, and the neighbor is a dance instructor. That's why it's called the Mambo. So, I get it. Teaches the wives the Mambo. The trio had planned to attend a party at a relative's home in Robinwood, Morris, Jefferson County, Alabama. Okay. At the time they were last seen alive, the men were traveling in Billy's 1947 Green Ford pickup. I bet that was a pretty car. 1947, Mm -hmm. you said? Yeah. 1947 Green Ford pickup. Okay. It was raining heavily on the night of March 3rd, and many others chose not to travel that night. So that was an old school looking truck, like the ZZ Top car type of thing with a rounded, yeah. 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 When the brothers and their cousin didn't turn up at home the following day, no one was initially worried. They often disappeared for days on beer-fueled trips without incident. So they're like party animal guys. You expect to be all gone and whatever. The trio were also active at the time in the production of Moonshine and would often be gone for days due to these activities. Yeah, Moonshiners, they got shit to do, man. I guess. As time passed, some believed the men had been arrested for something and would turn up once they'd yeah. either sobered up in a jail cell or made a call looking for someone to come pick them up. That feels like, yeah, that, those kind of guys, these are the kind of guys they are. Eventually, having not received any word from any of the men by the end of the weekend, with them all missing picking up their checks from the construction site they worked on, yeah. their cousin, Curtis Brasher, Dan's bra- brother. Dan's brother, but the mm-hmm. other guy's cousin? Yeah, went with their father to first check every jailhouse in the county, which, I, you know, that's kind of interesting. It's though. kind of funny that's the first thing yeah, you think. Sure they must be in jail. And then they filed a missing person re- persons report. Okay. So, in the initial investigation, investigators found themselves immediately meeting a wall of silence. And that was due to many of the family members who were involved in criminal activities. Like the moonshining and all of that stuff. Okay. Um, But there was an agreed upon story that the three men had left together in the 1947 Ford pickup truck. There was little else that was offered by the family to help the investigation. Many um, separate descriptions of the possible activities of the three men on the night were given, but many contradicted each other and proved only to muddle the investigation further. Okay. So it wasn't long before a few facts could be established, though whether or not they held any significance in the disappearance of the three men remains unclear. So on the night of the 3rd of March, hold on. Oh, got to get wet the whistle. I went to whistle. Yep. A neighbor of the family heard several gunshots in the neighborhood Ooh. and reported to the police the next day. Okay. But it was dismissed at the time as a noise complaint, though in light of the missing three men, it was possibly a sign of foul play, maybe. Yeah, once you know they're gone. Then another neighbor later told police that he had seen several men filling containers of water from his outdoor faucet. 
on the morning of March 4th and then carrying them in the direction of the house where the party had been held, like a fire brigade. Oh, like somebody, there might have been a fire. But nobody knows the significance of that, but that's just weird. You and he didn't like stop them or something, or back then he could just take guess, water from anybody's house. If yeah, you I, I don't know. That's weird. Another report that came to police was from the owner of a local store that said on the morning of March fourth, a man came in asking him for anything that would help get blood off a floor. Oh, the man bought a large quantity of Red Devil Lie before no. leaving, and it's not known if police ever followed this tip up. Yeah, that's uh, that's a suspicious thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A more interesting report police would come to focus on for the majority of the investigation was made by a man living in Blount County, over 60 miles away. Blount County, y'all. On the night of March 3rd and the morning of March 4th, he reported to police that a bulldozer had been active on the construction site where U.S. Highway 79 was being built at the time. Yeah. This piqued the interest of authorities as no official works had been going on in the middle of the night, uh. and the three men had been employed on the construction of the road at the time of well, their disappearance. that's a connection. That's a valid thing. That should be investigated yeah. somehow. Despite several lines of inquiry, the investigation soon went cold and remained so for years. Then, so Curtis Brasher, the brother of Dan Brasher, became frustrated with the lack of interest shown by local authorities in trying to locate the three men. And he began a letter-writing campaign to stir up interest from state officials. Okay. He even went on to write several to J. Edgar Hoover himself. Okay. His efforts eventually led to the sheriff at the time assigning a deputy permanently to work the case. Deputy Tom Ellison was this man. Oh, he couldn't have got a better guy. Tom Ellison, stand-up fella, probably. He oversaw drilling operations by the Alabama Department of Public Safety into the U.S. Highway 79 in the hopes they would find some trace of the men if they'd been buried beneath it during the construction work in 1956. Yeah, that's the way to find them. But nothing was found in the search. The widespread coverage of the digging convinced the public that the men had likely been buried under the highway, and this continues to be the most supported theory. They still think they were buried under that highway, huh? So then Deputy Ellison alleged in an article published in the 70s that he was eventually taken off the case because he was getting too close to solving it and potentially discovering connections between county officials Uh and the moonshine trade at Uh the time. Oh, there's some connections. This is a corruption Yep. Thing. In the 1970s, the highway theory came to the fore again with when a new Jefferson County commissioner named Tom Glure ordered new drilling operations to search for the men's remains under Highway 79. Get it, Tom Glure. Three years after this, and with still no sign of the men or their car, Glure asked the U.S. Navy for the use of metal detectors to scan the highway for signs of large pieces of metal buried beneath it. Glore. Despite the Navy search finding sites of interest, follow-up digs proved fruitless. A state investigator named O.M. Raines wrote an article in 1984 in which he claimed three separate witnesses had come forward over the years to indicate a vehicle matching the description of the 1947 Ford had been buried by a bulldozer on the night of March 3rd, 1956. Mm. He also stated none of these witnesses were the man who initially reported the bulldozer operating. So these were new different new, people. different people corroborating. So here's a couple theories. All right. The first is the moonshine theft theory. Okay. So the brothers and their cousin were known at the time to be involved in the illegal moonshine trade, as moonshine I said. Is... As were others in their family. And it was learned early in the investigation that the men had been accused of robbing supplies and moonshine stores of their rivals in the months leading up to their disappearance. State investigator Raines alleged in his 1984 article that he believed 
that the two brothers had been murdered at the party on March 3rd and their cousin a few days after in retaliation for these thefts. Oh, okay, yeah. It's believed that the two brothers were buried with their pickup truck that night under Highway 79, while rumors suggest their cousin was buried in a cemetery nearby later that week. Really? No physical evidence has been shown to prove these claims, but it remains the most widely accepted theory. Like the whole truck and everything's supposedly buried under there? Yeah. Rains also alleged that, like Deputy Ellison, that superiors hampered the original investigations due to their own ties to the illegal moonshine yeah, trade. So I there's another reason. Would, yeah. Another run deep. Another theory is that it was an accident, and so it you know the description of them as being have drunk all the time yeah. and it was raining really hard out <clears throat> that night. Um, it's been suggested maybe they just veered off the road in the bad weather and went in the swamp. Or the river or something. Somewhere deep. It's unclear if any searches were made in the early investigation of waterways and bog land along their likely route. I guess they could be anywhere if they were known to disappear for a while. They could have. Then another theory is they were murdered by rivals and dumped in a coal mine. Yeah, that's I think that's probably it. So there was an article published during the early investigation that suggested that the men may have been killed in an execution-style shooting by rivals in the moonshine trade and then dumped in one of a large number of disused coal mines in the area. Mm. A few strands of human hair were found near the entrance to a mine shaft in Jefferson County at the time and have since been misplaced. Preventing modern testing to establish they lost if the they hairs? belong to one of the men. Whoop! Swallowed them. Yep. Sorry. Then another theory is that they were killed sometime after the night of March third. So okay. this theory, also believed by some, is that the investigators focused too much on the night of March third as the likely moment something happened to the oh. three men. Some of it suggested, due to their moonshine operations, they may have ventured somewhere in the days after the party without first returning home in order to check one of the sites where the stills were and uh. meet with and met with foul play. Like all theories in the case. No physical evidence exists to back that up. So um, in 1984, there was the biggest break so far in the case happened. An ex-convict from Louisiana named T.J. Chambly confessed to participating in murdering the men, saying he wanted to clear his conscience. Okay. He said he helped dispose of the bodies and the Ford in an abandoned mine near Trafford. But when local authorities went to Louisiana to question Chambly, they discovered his story held inconsistencies. Oh. So he was never Did charged. they check the mine, though? It's unclear. Oh. The case remains active to this day, with regular <coughs> tips still coming in, according to the Jefferson County Sheriff's That's crazy. Department. Most recently, some theories have suggested the burial site of the men in their vehicle may lie under U.S. Route 31 instead of 74. Oh. Or 79, as first assumed. Tests have been carried out with specialized scanners, but there has not been any proof found. And that is the story of the moonshine murders or the brasher die um, disappearance. disappearance. Yeah, I would say it's maybe a disappearance, but it might be a murder, but we won't know unless more things happen. Someday they'll find that truck, I think. Think? Unless it's in a <coughs> swamp or something. Yeah, or they somebody painted it and turned it into something, whatever, but... Yeah. yeah, who knows? That's a mystery. Yeah, I don't the know moon. why they assumed the truck would be with the men still. Yeah, I don't know. Good if they just had no sign of it. Yeah. The vehicles usually turn up, I would guess. Yeah, back then maybe they did. Well, that was cool, and that's the beginning of March. That's just the beginning of this episode, though. We got more stuff to cover in history for Jerksland. All right. Because on March 7th, just a few days after their disappearance, and coincidence, maybe not, 
uh, famous actor was born. We got a birthday. Canoga Park, California. Well, born in Hollywood, but raised in Canoga Park. The second of three children, born to Annalisa, a radio actress, and Joseph Lewis Cranston, and who was an actor and former amateur boxer. Brian Cranston? Yes, Brian Cranston was raised in Canoga Park. His father held many jobs before deciding to become an actor, but he did not secure enough roles to provide for his family, so he eventually walked out on the family when Brian Cranston was 11. Oh, poor Brian Cranston. And while Brian Cranston claimed that he based his portrayal of Walter White on his own father, who had a slumped posture like the weight of the world was on his shoulders. Yeah. After his father left, he was raised partly by his maternal grandparents and lived on their poultry farm in Ucaipa, California. And a little known fact about Brian Cranston, beloved actor from Breaking Bad, in 1968, when he was 12 years old, he encountered Charles Manson. What? While riding horses with his cousin at a... A ranch. It happened about a year before Manson ordered the Holy Tate LaBianca murders. So Holy how about that? Shit. Little known thing about Brian Cranston. Yeah. This is according to Wikipedia. I didn't really look up the article where he said that, but oh that gosh. could be a lie. But then Cranston went on to graduate from Canoga Park High School, where he was a member of the school's chemistry club. Canoga Park High School's team colors are Hunter Green and White, home of the Hunters. Notable alumni include LeVar Ball. Do you know who that is? No, I have no idea. LeVar Ball is like a famous... A basketball player, but more famous for his kids. His kids all you play basketball. You notice that light looks like a boob? Yeah. I do notice all the lights in our house look like boobs. It's a weird thing. Anyway, LeVar Ball's son, LaMelo, plays for the Charlotte Hornets, and he's pretty good. And that's where we, that's our hometown basketball team. But you don't care about that. No. And then March 10th, 1956, test pilot Peter Twist. Say that three times fast. Test pilot Peter Twist sets a new world air record of 1,132 miles per hour in a test flight. Oh, I was going to say pilot, I guess, is an airplane. Airplane. Some sort of aircraft. Aircraft pilot. But in 1956, that was pretty fast. Yeah, that's true. Just to, you know, get you guessing, do you know what the current speed miles per hour record is? New world air record? Isn't oh, it? God. It's probably like light speed or something. 2,193. Because they had that hour. Concorde. Current record, 1976. Was it called the Concorde? Isn't that the real supersonic jet that they had? I'm not exactly sure. I don't know a whole lot about air flights. But March 15th, what I do know, if I don't know that, I do know that March 15th, 1956, we had a new NWA wrestling champion, because whipper Billy Watson beat Luthez in Toronto to become the new NWA wrestling champion. Woo-hoo. And I looked up a lot of stuff on this just to see, like, oh, what are these guys like? What was the deal? And the biggest thing I found about wrestling in the 50s was um, Luthez, who uh, lost, was one of the original shoot wrestlers, they called them. Shooters. Mm-hmm. You know what that means? Like, they, they hire a guy who can really wrestle. Yeah. Even though it's fake wrestling, so that if somebody decides to go against the plan, so mm-hmm. you know, you're supposed to lose to Luthez. You're supposed to lose. Luthez is supposed to remain the champion, but some guy's got a title bout 
But he decides while he's in the ring, I'm going to just fucking take the belt because even yeah. though the script says I'm supposed to lose, Luthez is a real badass wrestler, so he could really actually wrestle if he wanted to. So if somebody mm-hmm. wanted to try to pin him, they couldn't because he was tough and hold his own kind of thing. Yeah. So there were shoot wrestlers that, in case people try to go off script, they can hold their own and actually wrestle. Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of a whole thing that I didn't know really oh. happened. But they had these wrestlers like that that could actually dictate the, the way if it goes. people really wanted to go against it. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. A little tidbit about wrestling you didn't know. A little tidbit. And then March 17th, which was St. Patty's Day of 1956, True. was the 8th Annual Emmy Awards. The Ed Sullivan Show won, and Phil Silver Show won, and Lucy Ball Lucy Ball won. And Erica from my, All My Children still didn't win. No, she'll never win. And then March 20th. Union workers ended a 156-day strike at Westinghouse Electric Corp. I don't know why I kept that in. And then March 21st was the 28th Academy Awards. Oh. And that's where Ernest Borgnine won for Marty. Oh, okay. You ever see that? No, did you? Yeah, I did. I was watched it, good? it. It was good. It was really good. Was it? It was just neat, too, because it was like one of the first times a, like, quote unquote, unattractive guy mm-hmm. won a best actor. Like, yeah. everybody had to be attractive. Right. But I have this little clip I want to play okay. uh, of Audrey Hepburn and Jerry Lewis because Jerry Lewis was the host. Uh, now to present the award to the best Marty picture. is a movie. Former right? Academy Award Marty winner, Miss Audrey Ms. Hepburn. Hello, Jerry. Hello, Audrey. How are you, darling? <laughs> Very well, thank you. It's been nice seeing you again, dear. Jerry. Yes? Before I present the award, I have something for you. For me? I don't figure to get one of them. Well, it's not quite an Oscar, but for your wonderful work tonight, the Board of Governors of the Academy have asked me to give you this. And she kisses him on the cheek. Thank you. That's, uh, That's very nice, and I certainly appreciate it. I can't wait to get home to see if it fits on the mantle. Uh, very funny. And now Audrey the Hepburn is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Best picture of the year. Just a f- elegant. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of a neat little clip. I decided to just put it in there. Yeah, I like it. Anyway, March 24th. 1956 was the 18th NCAA Men's Basketball Championship. San Francisco beats Iowa 83-71 to to get back-to-back national titles. And that jumps us into April because we're doing March and April, yeah, everybody. Right. Uh, you know, before we jump into April, I just wanted to mention uh, to you that the other day when I was really having a, a tough time focusing because of my stupid ADD, you offered me a half of one of your Adderalls to see if it helped. I don't know if that's illegal. And I yeah, it's illegal <laughs> and you probably shouldn't be mentioning it. But it didn't work for me. It made me more nervous and it made me like on edge. I felt like I had a thousand cups of coffee. I was like, I felt like I was on crack. And then I found out Adderall is like basically meth, right? It's like the same it's ingredient. It's amphetamine. That's crazy. So I was on meth for a day. I had a meeting that day. I must have been, been like a crazy person. Anyway, Hated it. Felt awful. Um, you took half an Adderall. I know. I you know. You weren't on meth for a day. Yeah. It's a little bit dumb. <laughs> but anyway, that was the effect it had on me, and I, I guess I'm susceptible to medicine. So 
that just goes more to say this magic mind stuff that I've been yeah. trying, which I'm currently out of. Uh, but that stuff really works. And because I'm susceptible to medicine and it doesn't do that to me, but it does help me focus. Um, and it helps me drink less coffee. So I talked to you guys about Magic Mind before. If you haven't listened to that episode, it's a little tiny green elixir that takes like one second to drink. And it tastes like fruits and vegetables. Uh, tastes like apples to me, kind of. It's kind of sweet. Uh, anyway, but it helps me uh, focus more and gives me hours of, of things and it helps me drink less coffee also. Uh, which is really cool. And I think uh, apparently the science behind it is more to do with the ingredients. Uh, Bacopa monnieri, which is a natural nootropic that helps with procrastination. It's supposed to be like a natural Adderall. Uh, so mm. and they say they say that procrastination is more based on stress in your cortisol levels, which is something coffee spikes. Did you know that? Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, rather than being lazy, when people call oh, people with, you know, lazy. Yeah, lazy, it's not really mm-hmm. that. It's partly your stress. It can shut you down. Anyway, uh, so we have this solution. It's called Magic Mind. It's a delicious little drink. It doesn't take long. If you're like me and medicine makes you jittery and awful, uh, try Magic Mind, and you just so happen to be able to get a discount using our link. Uh, go to magicmind.co slash ATL, and your discount code is ATL for American Timelines. Uh, code ATL. So check it out. You can get up to 40% off a, a subscription, and uh, that's the way to go. I need to re-up my subscription because I need some more uh, to make me concentrate better. Anyway, it works for me, and it could work for you. And thanks to Magic Mind for giving us a discount. What what? And supporting American Timelines. Yes. And helping American Timelines reach more listeners, which is cool that yeah. they want to support us. Definitely. And with that, I'm going to jump into April. All right. Let's of see. Of 1956, I got some interesting things, and I got some, as always, awful yeah. racist things. Yeah. Uh, but. We are in 1956. And some other things, yeah. So, And so we'll start with April 2nd, soap operas, As the World Turns, and Edge of Night premiered. Okay, I've never heard of Edge of Night. I hadn't either, but As the World Turns, that's old as fuck. Yeah, it is. Um, April 3rd was the Hudsonville Standale Tornado, the strongest tornado that has ever hit Western Michigan. Mm. The strongest winds anywhere on Earth in the year 1956 occurred that Tuesday afternoon in Hudsonville, Michigan. Many homes were swept completely away, leaving bare foundations behind. Extensive wind rowing of debris was observed, and vehicles were tossed hundreds of yards and were barely recognizable as vehicles. One home that was swept away had all of its tile flooring scoured from the foundation. That March had been cold and snowy, and people were waiting for spring, but on that Monday, April 2nd, warm air moved north from the Gulf of Mexico and severe thunderstorms developed and produced 19 tornadoes in Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, and Missouri. The twisters killed seven people. One tornado skipped along a 108-mile path all the way from Oklahoma into Kansas. A savings bond from a destroyed home near Newkirk, Oklahoma, was found near Williamsburg, Kansas. Jeez. More than 100 miles from its origin. That wacky tornado. Near Maple City, Kansas, a plastic belt was found embedded in a tree. 
Holy smoke. And another tornado skipped up and down along a 127-mile path through four counties in Kansas. Yeah, tornadoes are nothing to fuck with. Yeah, you know what? You don't want to fuck with them. Uh, don't. Don't fuck with them. I never understood in that mo- Twister movie when Bill like Paxton. Chasing him around. Yeah, and uh, and the girl from Mad About You. Helen Hunt. Helen Hunt, yeah. Anyway, it was really unusual, though. They weren't expecting tornadoes because the lake was cold at this point, and the water temperature was probably in the low 40s. Mm. They weren't expecting tornadoes to happen. But um, but they was wrong. It injured seven and destroyed four homes. Uh, anyway, there's tornadoes. Fuck you up. Yep. All told, there were 40 storm-related fatalities in the April 2nd third storms and 685 people. Not terrible. Yeah. And then we have a birthday, another birthday on April 5th. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. Paige Joseph Falkenberg Jr., the eldest of three children, was born in Point Pleasant, New Jersey, the son of Sylvia and Paige Falkenberg Sr. He was raised by his father during his early years after his parents divorced. Mm. You know who Paige Joseph Falkenberg Jr. is? No. Well, his brother Rory and sister Sally were raised by their maternal grandmother, but he lived from his father from three to eight. Uh, and at eight, he went to live with his grandmother who raised him, and he admitted in his autobiography that he's dyslexic. He had many challenges through his childhood and educational years. He attended St. Joseph High School mm-hmm. in Toms River, New Jersey, team colors blue and white, home of the Griffins, for his freshman and sophomore years. Uh, he spent his first season on the JV basketball team, and then he transferred to Point Pleasant Borough High School in Point Pleasant, where he was a star basketball player with the Point Pleasant Borough High School Panthers, black and gold, or the team colors. Notable alumni include Robert DeLeo, who was a bass player and songwriter for Stone Temple Pilots. Nice. So this guy, who I'm about to tell you about, Paige Falkenberg, yeah. went to school with one of Stone Temple Pilots. Okay. Uh, later in life, he ran a nightclub in Fort Myers, Florida called Norma Jeans, known for its pink Cadillac. Now, do you know who it is? Mm. And this guy then started working as a wrestling manager in the AWA. And he took the name Dallas because he liked the Cowboys. Diamond Dallas Page. Oh, my God. Diamond Dallas Page. How do you know that name? I'm so impressed with you. Yeah, I've never that out of the air. I've never been more attracted to you than oh I am right God. now. Oh, my God. That you know who Diamond Dallas Page is. I couldn't pick oh him out of a God. lineup. Oh, my God. Well, he's beautiful, so oh, that's what you should yeah. get to know. Anyway, he started managing in 1988, and he didn't really come into wrestling until, like, the mid to late 90s. Yeah. But one thing I did when I researched this, and this is just for wrestling fans. You won't care anything about this at all. No. But he he didn't turn pro until 1989 uh, and wrestled Dick Slater, but he wasn't known in, until WCW in, like, the mid-90s, right? But in 1990, he received a tryout with the WWF as an announcer, but he wasn't offered a job. But at WrestleMania six, he drove Rhythm and Blues, the honky-tonk man and Greg the Hammer Valentine, down to the ring in a pink Cadillac. This time, he was virtually unknown in the wrestling world. So if you go back and watch that entrance, you can find it on YouTube. You see DDP is driving Rhythm and Blues, honky-tonk man, a future DDP. Nobody knew who he was at the time. But it's a little... Known trivia in wrestling. And if I, if you're a wrestling fan and you just learned that for the first time, please give me props at History for Jerks. Yeah. Tweet us at History for Jerks and say, hey, I learned something about wrestling on American timelines. Jesus. Because I didn't know that. 
and you didn't know that, I and didn't nobody do that. that, and you don't even know what I'm talking about. I have no, I don't know what planet I'm on. You know who Greg the Hammer Valentine is? No. I mean, I don't know the name. Yeah, he <laughs> he is one of the least charismatic wrestlers of all time. Oh. But he's great at, like, falling on his face. <laughs> like, he was just blah. But he's a good wrestler, but he's just like. Man, all right, moving on. Anyway, we'll move on. April 7th, 1956 was the 10th NBA championship. Despite 30 points from Fort Wayne Pistons forward George Yardley, the Philadelphia Warriors beat the Fort Wayne Pistons 99-88. to Two teams that aren't the same teams anymore. Okay. You want to guess who they are now? The Fort Wayne Pistons and the Philadelphia Warriors. What sport are we talking about? Basketball. The Fort Wayne Pistons are now the Detroit Pistons, and the Philadelphia Warriors are now the Golden State. Golden State Warriors. Have you heard of that? I don't know. You know who plays for them? Steph Curry. I don't. He's a Charlotte born guy. Okay, you don't care about this. No. <laughs> All right, April eighth, nineteen fifty six. Maybe you'll care about this. This was the day of the Ribbon Creek incident, Ooh. the night of April eighth, nineteen fifty six. Uh, at approximately 8 p.m., Staff Sergeant Matthew McKeon, a combat veteran of World War II and the Korean War, led his pla- led Platoon 71, his assigned platoon of 74 recruits, on an extra exercise to Ribbon Creek, which was a swamp. Mm. According to a doctor's testimony given at his trial, Staff Sergeant McKeon was not intoxicated or under the influence of alcohol at the time of the exercise. McKeon led the platoon toward a swampy tidal creek on Paris Island near the Marine Corps Recruit Depot and conducted an exercise in the creek. McKeon entered the water first, according to trial transcripts. The recruits broke formation as they entered the creek and were joking and fooling around the water near the swamps adjacent to the weapons training battalion. But the platoon marched along the creek bed, but many strayed into deep water, resulting in the drowning deaths of six recruits. Private Thomas Curtis Hardiman, Private First Class Donald Francis O'Shea, Private Charles Francis Riley, Private Jerry Lamont Thomas, Private Leroy Thompson, and Private Norman Alfred Wood. And then there was an investigation. Between 9 and 9.20 p.m., Captain Patrick called Colonel W.B. McKeon, the commanding officer of the Weapons Training Battalion, Marine Corps Recruit Depot, Paris Island. The captain reported, we're in trouble. There are a bunch of recruits coming back to the building 761, and it seems that the DI has been marching them through the swamps. I'm going now to investigate it. On April 9th, a court of inquiry was convened to inquire into the circumstances surrounding them marching Platoon 71 into Ribbon Creek, and they found that it was a common practice to march in the swamp, so it wasn't really that unusual. Oh. And Staff Sergeant McKean was brought before the court the following day. At first, he was classified as mentally and emotionally stable and a mature stable-appearing career Marine. Mm -hmm. The Court of Inquiry did decide that the detailed directives regarding and prohibiting certain Marine training methods were correct and adequate, that McKeon had launched an unnecessary and unauthorized disciplinary action. It was proven, though, that McKeon had consumed several alcoholic drinks the afternoon before the night march, Mm. but it was confirmed that he was not under the influence of alcohol when he led the recruits into the creek. The recommendation that was that McKeon be the subject of court-martial. The Secretary of the Navy, Charles S. Thomas, noted in his final action on the case, there's no question in my mind that his entire record indicated that 
he was cap- a capable non-commissioned officer and dedicated. He always attended church regularly. Even though he was relatively inexperienced as a drill instructor, his general reputation was excellent. Uh, he was very uh, impressed with mm-hmm. everybody defending him. And he said, I believe that the real punishment will always be the memory of Ribbon Creek on Sunday night, April 8th, 1956. Remorse will never leave him. Mm. And so he reduced the sentence uh, to a bad conduct charge and allowed him to remain in the Corps, but at a reduced rank of private. And he was sentenced to a $270 fine, nine months of confinement, and hard labor, and a bad dis... That's fine. Let's do a wrestling. I know. Dogs! All done! No more, Wheezy. Wheezy, all done. All done. Come in. Come here. Come here, Wheezy. The Secretary of the Navy eventually reduced the sentence to three months in the brig and reduction to private, but with no discharge or fine. Uh, he then returned to active duty, but never regained his former rank. and was medically retired in 1959 as a corporal because of a back injury. He then worked as an inspector of standards for his home state of Massachusetts. And he said in a 1970 Newsweek interview that he had a lifelong burden of guilt and how he prayed every day for God to keep the dead recruits in his safekeeping and for his own forgiveness. Jeez. And he died on November 11, 2003 at age 79. All right. And then on April 11, 1956, singer Nat King Cole was attacked on stage of Birmingham Theater. Really? Uh, Birmingham's Municipal Auditorium. Uh Eleanor Roosevelt had stared down Bull Connor there in 1938. Ten years later, Strom Thurmond led 6,000 Southern Democrats, soon to be known as Dixiecrats, who fled the Philadelphia National Convention to launch a political movement to maintain segregation. That -hmm. happened there. Mm -hmm. And then eight years later, Nat King Cole took that stage with his all-white band for a few early shows for a white audience and a late-night show for a black audience. Welcome to the stage by Birmingham Mayor Jimmy Morgan. Cole... And the Ted Heath Orchestra were only on their third song when members of the Ku Klux Klan of the Confederacy rushed the stage. Ugh. The group was organized by Asa Carter, who penned George Wallace's Segregation Forever speech mm-hmm. and the book that inspired Clint Eastwood's classic film, The Outlaw Josie Wales. Members of his group castrated a black guy in 1957. Oh, my God. Ugh, assholes. As the all-white audience of 4,000 watched, Cole was knocked down by a group of club-wielding white men. Oh Cole was midway through the romantic ballad Little Girl. Three of the men vaulted the footlights, and one Kenneth Adams grabbed the startled singer, who was hit in the face by a falling microphone, and wrestled Cole over his piano stool onto the floor. According to the Organization of American Historians Magazine of History, that is. Adams was an Anison gas station owner, publicly linked to the burning of a bus carrying Freedom Riders, the unsolved murder of Willie Brewster, and an unearthed plot to bomb churches and newspapers. He was a real fucking ass. Yeah, he was. Plainclothes policemen alerted to the possibility of trouble at the concert, rushed to rescue the singer, only to clash with uniformed cops who thought they were a second wave of the attack. Mm. So it was a big melee. Mm -hmm. As the curtain fell and Cole was rescued, the Ted Heath Orchestra, a British band touring with Cole, stayed at at its post and launched into God Save the Queen. Yeah. Some audience members believe the attackers had rushed the stage to attack a drunk man near the front row who had been jeering at Mr. Cole, Negro Go Home, according to the Equal Justice Initiative. 
uh, police present at the concert in case of trouble, apprehended Cole's attackers quickly, though. Four men were charged with inciting a riot, while two others were held for questioning. Outside the arena, officers later found a car containing rifles, a blackjack, and brass knuckles. Each person arrested received a maximum sentence of 180 days plus fines. Cole returned to the stage to a lengthy standing ovation after the attack, but he told the audience he needed to get checked out at the hospital. Poor and guy. He said, I just came here to entertain you, he told the crowd. Yeah. This is according to the EJI. That was what I thought you wanted. I was born in Alabama. Those folks hurt my back. I cannot continue because I need to see a doctor. After being examined by a physician, Mr. Cole went on to perform at the scheduled Blacks Only show later that night. Hmm. Yeah. Did you ever know about that happening? No. Not surprised, but... No. Of course not. Oh, and then April 14th, Ampex Corp demonstrates the first commercial videotape recorder. Oh. 1956. It was like the size of this room. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It was... uh, it was the Ampex Corporation of Redwood City, California, the first practical videotape recorder for television stations and networks to produce and time shift broadcasts. It was only $10,000. Yeah, it replaced Kinescope movie film, which we talked about before, previously used to record TV. Anyway, this became the video analog video standard uh, for 20 years. Wow. And then on April 14, 1956... Paul Hogan shocked the art world by unhooking an impressionist masterpiece, the Jour de Ete. Wait a minute. The summer's, Paul Hogan, the, the summer's guy who day played Crocodile Dundee. By Berth Morissette from a wall in the Tate Gallery in London, and he carried it calmly out of the gallery. Despite being photographed by journalists while he was stealing it, he was never prosecuted and returned it four days later. No, it was a different Paul Hogan. Oh. I thought it was the same Paul Hogan, but that guy was Australian. This guy's Irish. I see. And so this guy and his buddy, uh, they walked in the Tate Gallery in London to seize this masterpiece. They were both from Dublin, Paul Hogan mm-hmm. and Billy Fogarty from Galway. Um, oh, I guess Paul Hogan was from Dublin and Billy Fogarty was from Galway. They believed that the painting uh, was the property of Ireland and had been unjustly obtained by the British government. They were uh, art students uh and they scoped out the joint for a number of days, previously pretending to sketch the artworks that were in there. Instead, mm-hmm. they were learning when the guards took their morning tea break. Oh. That's how they figured out when to take it. And they, uh, the pair hoped that when they were inevitably caught, departing the gallery with it underarmed, that they could get a lot of attention to them taking. They thought they'd mm-hmm. be caught, so they positioned a cameraman outside the museum so when they're like fighting with the guards and everything yeah i'll get a shot of it oh. and make the news and be like hey these irish guys are are, are doing this the problem is they walked right out with it and nobody stopped them and there was oh, there no. was no so the cameraman just took the picture of them walking out with it and then they were like oh shit now what do we do oh, no. we didn't know we were going to take this so they made it out the entrance without anything and they just had that picture and so the picture ended up being uh post in the paper and they actually got away with it so they didn't know what to do so they were irish students and they were unfamiliar with london so they didn't even know where to go when they got out they were Mm -hmm. like shit we don't know what to do next so that's when they went to mary's house um but yeah so the the picture of the of them taking the art was published in newspapers around the world and the metropolitan police were soon hot on their trail Mm-hmm. The officer in charge of the investigation was one DCI McGrath. The Dubliner was in demand after he solved the case of the missing stone of Scone. 
1950. Remember we talked about yes, that? The I Irish, do the Scottish that. guys. In a remarkably similar circumstance, the Stone of Schoon had been stolen by four Glaswegian students uh, intent on reawakening a sense of national identity amongst the Scottish people. So this is kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Instead of the Scottish people wanting to get it back to Scotland, it's the Irish people having the same problem. Uh, so the painting was returned to the Tate. But the collection was soon shared with Dublin. So as a result of this... Mm-hmm. Oh, it was it was quickly discovered that the suspect in the photograph was the son of senior civil servant in Ireland, and a spotlight was soon on Paul Hogan's family. When it was found that he was the son of Sarsfield Hogan, a senior advisor to Dowisich de Valera, all hell broke loose. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Yeah, no, anyway, no. the family had the press knocking on the door, and suddenly young Paul was the big fugitive of the time. Uh, <clears throat> Hogan and Fogarty who had taken to disguising themselves as priests to escape the authorities in Cambridge, eventually decided to ask Mary to return the painting to the Irish Embassy in London. And she agreed and was quickly returned to the Tate Gallery. But their escapade was not in vain, as the Tate eventually agreed to share the paintings with Dublin while controversially retaining ownership. Mm -hmm. So because of this act, they decided, you know, it belongs to Irish people, so let's share it oh well good and to this day the national gallery in london and the hugh lane gallery in dublin have come to an agreement they'll put decades of back and forth behind them and now they have a 10-year plan to rotate the pieces between the museums as that's as late as 2021 Hmm. (laughs) you're falling asleep i know okay just a couple more things okay listen to me here you know who grace kelly is yes who's she who is she actress do you know who she married yeah, the Prince of Monaco. See, you do know stuff. Did you know that her family had to pay a $2 million dowry no. to marry him? Wow. Not only did the Kelly family have to submit to a fertility test to prove that she could bear children, Jeez. but she was also required to play, pay a dowry, Ooh, according to Best Life Online. Uh Rainier asked Kelly's father for a $2 million dowry, but when he balked at paying that extravagant sum, Kelly ended up paying half the dowry herself. So she had to pay to marry that dude. Yeah. Yep. In 1956, they were married in a high-profile ceremony that drummed up significant interest from fans all around the world. In spite of the procedures and protocols that were in place prior to their wedding, the couple had a successful happy marriage going on. Until to she welcome died in a three, car crash. three children, yeah. But they got married on April 19th, 1956. Mm-hmm. And April 24th, just a few days after they got married, American League umpire Frank Umont is the first to wear glasses in a regular season game. Will you clear your throat, please? <coughs> Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> All of a sudden, it was like Wolfman Jack. It's starring in the- I was, yeah. Wolfman Jack here in the April 27th. Undefeated world heavyweight boxing champion Rocky Marciano retires from the ring and then on april 28th we'll end it with this cincinnati reds outfielder frank robinson hits his first of 586 home runs wow who frankie robinson is nope you ever heard of frank robinson no why would i because he's a great baseball player why would i I have heard of him uh because he broke the color burial barrier burial no Jackie Robinson did. Frank Robinson did, too. Actually, there was somebody before Jackie Robinson who did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I think Frank Robinson was the only player to be named MVP mm-hmm. of both the NL and the AL. And he became the first black manager in big league history. Okay. He was the Cleveland Indians player manager. Yeah. I'm not mad at him. You ain't mad at it. I am mad at him. Anyway, uh, it? Don't forget about Magic Mind, baby. Drink that shit up. Don't forget, we got to get out of here, Chuck Berry. And we got to get the motherfucker out of here. Thank you for listening, everybody. Um, I got to get up at the crack of dawn's ass. Yeah, Amy's falling asleep. So. She's got to get up at the crack of dawn's asshole because she's a dedicated teacher. So please give us a million dollars so we don't have to work anymore. Thank you, Mary, uh, American Timelines fans. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for listening. Buy $100 million worth of Magic Mind. At magicmind.co slash ATL, baby. Anyway, we love all of you. You're great looking. You. I'm talking to you, listener. You person who's listening right now in your car. Yes, I know your finger was just halfway up your nose. You're still very attractive. Just put that booger outside. Disgusting. Goodbye. Don't wipe it in your beard. Sick. Matt Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time. Buy their music.